21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Welcome to the Run Your Life podcast. The purpose behind this podcast is to share stories from the world of education and beyond of people who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life. This podcast is a passion project of mine, and I love nothing more than interviewing my guests and really digging into their stories and the journeys that have shaped who they are and the work that they do. The reality is that it takes quite a bit of time and effort putting each episode together, and although my intention is to podcast regularly, I've let a number of months go by without releasing an episode. I've committed myself to getting back on track with releasing regular episodes again. If you are a return listener, thanks for your support. I appreciate that you take the time to listen to any episode that you can. If you are new to my podcast, I hope you enjoy the conversations that I have and that you come back to listen to as many episodes as you can. If the podcast resonates with you and the work that you do, I'd be super grateful if you could share it with others. In today's episode, I sat down to have a face-to-face conversation with educational consultant and cartoonist Matt Smith. Matt has a great story and is genuinely a person of the world. He is a third culture kid. If you haven't heard this term before, this is what the actual definition is. Third culture kids are people raised in a culture other than their parents or the culture of the country named on their passport for a significant part of their early development years. As a young person, Matt lived in Germany, Thailand, and Malaysia. Having attended international schools, Matt was constantly exposed to a multitude of different cultures and experiences, and it is during these very formative years when he began to develop an identity that was deeply rooted in the love of filmmaking. After graduating from high school in Malaysia, Matt attended the Vancouver Film School, then ultimately went on to get a degree in education. He jumped right into the world of international teaching at the American International School of Japan, which is located in Tokyo, and from there he went on to teach in Kuwait as well. What I appreciate about Matt's story and what you will learn from listening to this episode is his ability to take initiative in his life and to follow his passions. As a very creative person who enjoys writing and storytelling, Matt began to develop himself as a cartoonist in order to pass on his love of storytelling and creativity to young people. Although he had a short stint in cartooning school, he is very much self-taught. You'll hear about Matt's journey as a cartoonist and how he uses cartooning as a means to develop students' literacy skills in the classroom and to develop their love of reading. Matt now travels and presents at many different international schools around the world. He's a man who continues to take action in his life to not only be his best but to live a life of purpose and meaning through his work. If you are an administrator or curriculum coordinator and are listening to this episode, I highly recommend bringing Matt into your school. He had a huge impact at our school, Gardens Elementary School here in Saudi Arabia, during his week-long visit a couple weeks ago. Check out the show notes for how you can contact Matt. He'd love to hear from you. Without further ado my episode with Matt Smith. Okay, Matt, so thanks for being on the show, and uh, people have already heard a little bit about you in the introduction. Um, So I love these podcasts because they're in person, you know, and most of my podcasts are done on Skype. Okay. Where you're at the mercy of, uh, you know... And how well does that work? Technical connections and, you know, 
losing connections and having to call again on Skype. But yeah. uh, this is great uh, speaking in person. And uh, so you're doing some work at the school. And like I said, people have already heard a bit about you. But I guess let's just begin with um, who you are, kind of where you're from. And that will, could be a very long <laughs> a difficult, conversation. A but difficult question. <laughs> yeah, we'll give just the short version of where you're from. Yes. I've got, I've got, I've got the quick answer. I've got the medium answer. And then if people really want, I do have the long answer. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the quick one. Yeah. We'll go for the quick one. And then, um, what led you to yeah. be here in Saudi Arabia working this week at gardens elementary school? Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. So yeah. Uh, my name is Matt Smith. Um, I'm a cartoonist and a comics educator. Um, when people ask me where I'm from, it is a difficult question because I am a third culture kid through and through. Um, but I always tell people, uh, my dad's English. My mom's Canadian. I live in Scotland now, but I grew up all over the world. So that's my short answer. Okay, so let's dive into that a little more. Yeah. And just talk about some of the places that you grew, you know, was life for you growing up? Yeah, so my parents were international school teachers like I was before I became a full-time educational consultant, cartoonist. So they left Canada when I was very young. We lived in Germany for four years at a Canadian Armed Forces base. Then we left there and went to the International School of Bangkok, where I finished my elementary school. And then Great I did school, ISB. Yes, ISB. Yeah. It's fantastic. I was just back uh, presenting at Irkos. It was oh, really cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. Very trippy to be back and see the old places. And I, the school it was closed for the conference, but I went to my old classrooms and peered in the windows. It was very. Did you know Dick Kreitzer? Dick Kreitzer oh, is he's, fantastic. Yeah, I love him. Uh, he was one of my favorites. And when I heard that he passed away, I was. Devastated because yeah. I was going to present at the next PE conference. Yeah, and uh, such an amazing person. This is a tribute to Dick. Maybe this episode, he, like he's remarkable. fantastic. Um, I knew of him because he uh, hired my parents, and yeah. then he was very heavily involved in the international community and international schools in Asia, obviously through Irkos. Uh, and my parents always talked about how great Dick was and my dad always said this one thing and every time someone brought Dick up my dad was like you know he remembers everyone's name he He always makes a point to ask how you're doing yeah Um, so when I started visiting schools I was just kind of emailing anyone and everyone and I had some family friends who were also teachers at ISB Bangkok and ISKL uh, Tony and Rob Mullen if you're listening hi guys Um, but they said you gotta write to Dick so I wrote to Dick and I said hey I'm trying to reach more schools do you have any advice and he wrote back and said, would you like to present at Irkos? Beautiful. And I was oh my God. Like even now, like I'm getting a bit of goosebumps. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's, I never would have expected that. And I was yeah. so excited. And I was so excited to see him again in person and just thank him because yeah. directly from that visit, I contacted International School in Kuala Lumpur and Garden International School in Kuala Lumpur and, I, and uh, American School in Japan, Yokohama International School. And I said, I'm going to be in the region for Irkos. Like yeah. bring me out. All you have to do is fly me from Bangkok. So I turned that into a whole month's worth of school visits. And, you know, now I'm telling anyone and everyone who listens that I presented at Irkos and I wanted to thank Dick in person. And it was just just heartbreaking to hear that I, that I never got the chance to thank him. Yeah, it was um, very sudden. And, yeah. I mean, everyone, it was that Irkos was a very much, you know, a tribute to Dick and his name was definitely mentioned a lot. But, uh, yeah, it's just a tragedy to the educational world and just... I was just really upset that I never got to thank him for the little push that he's given me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story on a, a side note about Dick. So, yeah. so I had, uh, he had me go and present at the um, PE and Arts uh, Conference, Irko's Conference in the Philippines Yeah. Uh, a few years ago. I think it was 2015 or 2016. So I had known Dick for years before and... Um, so I'm, I'm at Irkos and Dick, uh, you know, I was a quarterback in university. Dick was a quarterback, okay. right? So we had the common football connection. And then there was a couple presenters, one from Canada and one from the UK that came over. And, and then we started throwing the football r- around at lunch. And Dick is just watching from like the third floor of International School of Manila, just watching us throw the football. And when we were done, he's like, oh, man, Andy, you can sure throw it. I could throw it, too. And then we start talking for the next 15 yeah. minutes about it. And then the next day, I had met one of the guys I was throwing the football to. Uh, one of the uh, the students, well, the guy was like 24 now, 
one of the the uh, the participants in the workshop had been mentored by this guy, and he's like, Andy, you got to meet this guy. He played wide receiver <laughs> for, for Guelph University. Um, so throw the football around with him. Yeah. So he and I go out the next day, gunning, and I'm throwing it as hard as I can at him. He's catching everything, and Dick's watching again from the <laughs> same spot. And then Dick's like, "You guys come in. There's like another session. You got to be in in five minutes." Yeah. So I they one one last pass, and then the guy says, "Okay, I'll run it down and out and up." And then I throw it about a forty yard pass and kind of overthrow him. Yeah. And he runs into a little maintenance fence and flips over, lands on his. On his hand, snaps his wrist and his elbow. <laughs> Compound fractures, yeah. right? And he gets up and and goes right to Dick. And the kid didn't have medical insurance, so Dick is like, "We need money and we need it quickly. Get this kid to the hospital." And he breaks into the to the fund, the the uh, typhoon fund yeah. that the school had. Gives him all the money and says, "Ericos, we'll we'll pay you back." <laughs> And then when, when Dick was inviting me back to the next conference, he was like, keep your football at home. Yeah. You're not allowed to throw footballs because you, you hurt people. But he had such an amazing sense of humor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just a great guy. Yeah. So from you, were, you were, went to uh, ISB and then KL. Yes. And then I did all my middle school and high school at the International School of Kuala Lumpur. Right. Yeah. IB graduate. Graduated with full DP. Uh I got what I got the grades you needed to pass. That's so you did the full DP. I did. I was yeah. Uh, I was a English humanities and theater uh, higher level, and then I had French, math, and chemistry lower level. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so having been in the uh, international system, that's one of my my the questions that I have for you. And I I, I knew you were a third culture kid. Um, when you did your first introductions, right? And when, you know, you... I, I make a point at international schools to tell kids that, hey, I'm a third culture kid. Like, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a still a strange thing, I think, for kids to see adults who's grown up and, you know, kind of... It's a really nice way, hopefully, for me to just let you guys know, like, hey, like, I kind of know what you're going through here. Yeah. Like, I have shared experiences, even though I've never been to Saudi Arabia. There are very common shared experiences for international school kids. So I do make a point of that. And it is kind of one of my selling points. Like, you can bring me out to any country. I'll figure it out. I know this. I know the deal. Yeah. I'll be okay. Yeah. And when I think of our kids, so you met one of my sons tonight, uh, Ty, who's 14 right now. Our oldest boy is 16, and, and they're going to be going off to university in a few years. Um, I asked you about how, when we were eating dinner before hitting record, was what was the transition like back to Canada? Because you hadn't really lived in Canada. Yeah. So just share share how being an international student, a third culture kid, prepared you for a life in Canada. What it really prepared you for, but what it didn't prepare you yeah. for. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's almost a better question is what I wasn't prepared for. Um, and... Like one of the things that I always think back to, I, I had a different path because I didn't go straight to university. I went to the Vancouver Film School, so I was already in a different uh, different environment. Because most of my friends went to university, they went to dorms, so they were kind of on campus, and it was still it was going from one sheltered existence to another sheltered existence. It was kind of you know a nice stepping stone before you lived off campus in quote unquote the real world. So I was living downtown Vancouver, um, which thinking back now like it was a terrifying big city but it's compared to other cities I've been to it's not that massive but for me being transplanted there and I always remember my parents dropped me off we went to see the school the night before my tour and it was as sun was going down and Vancouver Film School the film production uh, building was right on the edge of Hastings where East Hastings becomes West Hastings you know on West Hastings it's uh, the all the touristy things and the shopping malls. You go down East Hastings. That's rough. It's rough. And there were people settling in for the night right outside the school. And my parents, I didn't know this until many years later, my parents told me that night they didn't sleep because they stayed up all night talking about how to get me out of film school and into a university (laughs) because they were so terrified of what we saw as the sun was going down. Yeah. Um, It was really kind of just shocking to be around that many, uh, Caucasian people and yeah. just growing up internationally right? growing up internationally I, I saw people from 
all kinds of different backgrounds and ethnicities, but seeing just this large group of white people was kind of scary. <laughs> and um, it took me a few weeks of riding the bus and just kind of realizing, okay, I'm okay. I did kind of have my armor. I put my hoodie on sometimes to kind of shield myself yeah. just emotionally. But just kind of being there was good. Um, there was only a few kids that were just out of high school. So my film school was 30 students. So right away, it's like going to an international school right away. You kind of, whoever you come in with your cohort, you're kind of in it together. So yeah. th- 30 of us were always together. So that was really good for building community. Were they from around the world? No, uh, they were mostly from Canada. Some, one of my best friends to this day, he had come up from Washington, uh, Seattle, Washington State. So from all over Canada, a few from uh, the States, but very few international. Um, But I I, I hung out with the the older kids that were like 22. So they had done their college and this was kind of their post-grad. There was a few kids that were 18 around the same age. and I didn't connect as well as them just because they... We're just not right on the same level. Yeah, they, yeah. This was kind of their first time away from home. And for me, I was coming from my home was miles and miles away. Yeah, so yeah. I just kind of found my groove by hanging out with a bit of older kids and kind of connect with them because I wasn't going to fit in with the kids my age, own age anyway. Yeah. But um, I read an article this week. Um, I just kind of skimmed it and I, I saved it. So I need to read it fully. But the gist of the article is it was awesome. I, it was um, Harvard Review or something like that. But the gist of the article is if you get a chance to hire an international student kid yeah. or an international student, somebody who went through the system, yeah. hire them. They're amazing. For because, teaching or for any job? No, for any job. Yeah. Just because of the experiences uh, experiences that they have and moving around the world and having to be open to and adapting and, and adapting and new experiences. Yeah. These are the people you want to hire because they really are well-adjusted. And what they might be lacking, they make up for in many other ways, which is what the world needs now. Yeah. Right? So talk, you know, I want you to obviously go into the work that you're doing as a cartoonist. But when you think about um, the international, you know, growing up as a third culture kid, we talked about what the experience didn't prepare you for. In the work that you do now, how has the experience truly prepared you to thrive? Yeah, um, I am very fortunate. I know that I've got, first of all, comics are hot right now. Uh, You talk to any librarian who is connected and is looking at what students are checking out, and they'll tell you graphic novels are not staying on the shelves. And literacy is such a big thing in school right now. Schools want to get their literacy numbers up. They want to improve their literacy and comics are such a great way to get kids excited about literacy. So I know that it's an easy sell. Mm-hmm. So I know comics are an easy sell because schools are focused on literacy. And if you pay attention to what the kids are into, it's comics. So it's an easy sell. Um, so I'm lucky that I have that going for me. And also, I know how to approach international schools. I know people in the international school system, uh, people who taught with my parents, who were my teachers. They've all spread out and now they're in different places. So I shameless in contacting anyone and everyone I know networking without any shame. And now people that I've taught with as an international school teacher, they're moving around as well. So I know people and that's very lucky for me and very fortunate that I had those connections and I had that network and it's just growing and growing over time. And now it's, you know, snowballing and building itself up. But again, uh, I very much highlight the fact that I'm an IB graduate. I've taught at an IB school in Kuwait so approaching IB schools, like, hey, I know, you know, inquiry-based learning. I know how to structure a lesson for IB schools. Talking to schools, I make sure they know that I'm international because I can travel and I'm fine. I can go anywhere. I'll go to Saudi Arabia and I'll figure it out <laughs> yeah. and I'll survive. You don't have to babysit me. Uh, you know, I'll go to Hong Kong and put together five different schools and I'll be at a hotel and I'll figure out my train route and I'll know how to just figure that out. That's a total IB kid. Yeah, I and at my parents' evening at, uh, in the community center in Kaust, I tried to highlight the fact that I'm definitely living the IB lifestyle. I'm taking risks. I'm being principled. I'm being reflective. Okay, what worked well? What didn't work well? I was changing lessons today on the fly when I knew that I had a bit too much content for the time that I had. So I very much am living the IB 
learner profile and I yeah, wouldn't yeah, be doing what awesome. I was, I'm doing if I wasn't a third culture kid and if I wasn't an IB learner. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, my son, my youngest son who you met, has a passion for cooking and for soccer. Yeah. Football, as they call it here, right? But he, um, whenever we're going away, so I told you we're going to Japan for Christmas and, you know, last Christmas we were in Edinburgh. Mm. Um, oh, nice. And, you know, wherever we go, he's right on the computer looking up restaurants yeah looking up google maps where's the hotel how long does it take to walk you know we don't have to take a taxi we can walk past. yeah it'll be a long walk but it'll be worth it because along the way we can see this this yeah and, and that is the inquirer mindset which is what the ib um, well i mean that's the design model. cycle oh, yeah yeah exactly right? yeah and um that's what's so amazing about you know being in the system and seeing the kids kind of flourish and kind of blossom in their own ways. So as a parent ready to send two kids to university, there's still a couple of years. I do feel like they're going to be ready. You know, they're going to be ready and they're going to be okay. But then it's just that separation that when it comes to the day that you actually say goodbye is a different story. Yeah. But what was that like for you? So your parents were, um, in had they already retired? You no, said they were ret- teaching still in the international school of Kuala Lumpur. My brother had two more years of high school, okay. so they dropped me off in Canada for the summer, and they were saying goodbye. And I was going to go stay with my aunt and uncle in Victoria for a couple weeks until school started. And I was fine. And then my dad started crying. My dad's yeah. like a big dude. He's played rugby. You know, yeah. he's like a guy's guy. And when my dad started crying, that's when I broke. And I was like, oh, I, like I knew mom was going to cry, but when dad started crying, I was a mess. But I went back to my uncle and aunt's place, and <laughs> the first phone call I get when they flew back to Malaysia, it's not like, oh, how are you? We miss you. It was like, hey, how do we work the, the cable? We don't know how to unplug it. You changed something before you left. Like, yeah, I miss you guys too. <laughs> um, but, like, my parents are – my wife and my sister-in-law make fun of my family for how much we stay in contact even now. Like, oh, yeah. my parents, we have a family chat, and my parents aren't all the time. Um, so that really helped even back then, just constant emails and, uh, messaging and, you know, Skype as much as possible. And like at least once a week, my dad's always been good about that because he left England when he was, um, in his twenties. So he's always grown up or not grown up, but for his whole entire adult life, he's been really conscious about calling his family at least once a week. So it's just, you know, the next generation we're doing that, but it definitely was hard. I remember my grandparents were the ones who dropped me off at the place I was renting for film school. And my grandparents are lovely, but they are, aren't quite as sentimental as my parents. Like, all right, here's your stuff. We'll see you later. And they took off. And I was alone in this room. I turned on the TV and it was big. And it was the scene where he first spends the night in the city on his own. And oh, yeah. literally curls up in the fetal position and starts crying. And this is what I turned on the TV. And I was just staring at the TV like, oh, my God. Yeah. But... I was very lucky. Like I said, like I found that group of friends. And when I finally went to proper university two years later, I went with a group of graduates from ISKL. My brother was one of them and we went with a group. So we had that built in community. But yeah. even though I know my other friends who didn't go with people who graduated from the same school, but at university they would meet other international kids. And even if they went to a different school, completely different country, there's this immediate kinship and you do find someone who does have a shared experience even if you went to shanghai and they went to angola just that international right. community you find someone like, oh my gosh yeah, hey yeah. like oh let's talk like we're, we're your parents oh my gosh like no one gets it. i know yeah. it's oh. and that's you know what we say uh, my wife and i and for the international educators listening to this they will understand completely is that the international life for us has provided us with such a strong foundation of family mm-hmm. Because we're always together from the time the boys have always gone to the schools that we've, we've taught at. You know, I was their PE teacher yeah. all the way through. And it was like saying goodbye to them, sending them off to the MYP. Yeah. It was really a, <laughs> saying goodbye to them because I didn't teach them anymore. Yeah. But it's the fact that like, you see how close we live to the school. The school is 90 seconds away on foot to the elementary school. Yeah. And, you know, just the fact that we're always, always together is such a special thing. Yeah. And that's what you experienced. And, and now Both my parents you know, were my PE teachers growing up as well. Yeah. It's so cool. And, and now what we, we do is we replace like, you know, we have a Christmas tree up and 
Um, the reality is when we go away for Christmas, it's we might get a couple gifts, but it's the act of traveling that is the gift. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of things I'm reading that the best thing you can buy your kids are experiences and not gifts. Yeah. You know, so that's like we're eternally grateful and, and would never change a thing no. for having left Canada and embarked on this life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are definitely challenges. And one of the scariest things for me was when I went back to ISKL, I was working at the school. They hired me to make a recruitment video for them, but it was the same time as a big reunion. And I was talking to these graduates that were 20, 30 years older than me, and they were talking about how difficult it still was. Uh, as third culture kids, even though they're in their 40s and 50s. Yeah. And I was, I had a bit of a crisis. I was like, oh my gosh, I thought this was supposed to get easier. Like, <laughs> I, I thought it was going to get better, but it's going to be a thing that's going to follow me around. And there are challenges. And I know friends who went to university and just had such a hard time that first semester. But I always, always say, like, the benefits far outweigh the drawbacks. And I'm so grateful for my upbringing and the experiences it gave me and just who it's made me and you know, the skills and life skills it's given me, like I'll deal with feeling odd and feeling out like the odd one out and being the weirdo and having to try to figure out what it is I can connect with someone on. I'll deal with that for what I got in return. Yeah, for sure. And this is a nice segue into the work that you're doing. And, um, when, uh, we knew that you were coming, I, I looked you up, I found you on Twitter and I checked out your, your website and, and I, and I, in reading your website, I recognized like you had some UK going on, you had some Canada going yeah. on and that was really cool to, to read. But, you know, so you're a cartoonist full time and it's what you do. And we talked before about that moment of, of you. So you were teaching, you did an internship in, in Tokyo, right? I started my, uh, Time in Tokyo, uh, an internship program. Yeah. And then um, that led to full-time work at the school. Uh, yeah, I had a few study center classes. It was kind of a hodgepodge because some teachers left after the big earthquake of 2011. So yeah. I realized there was classes that were available and they were in a bit of a tight spot. So I was able to get a few classes to teach. So I had a kind of a range. It was still, I think I was still under the internship umbrella, but yeah. I was a teacher, which was... But you took initiative there. And that's the thing in hearing your story. You took initiative and something when... It was my mom's idea, to be fair. (laughs) But you were willing to do it because we can be pushed. Our parents can give us ideas. But ultimately, you're you're the one that made the choice to go for it. Yes. And And I I mean, I only interject because it is initiative, but it also is definitely support and definitely someone pushing you and encouraging you. And that's that's important, having those mentors or that support in place. But... You know, when, when we think of, so let's now rewind, say, 10, 15 years, whatever. Um, but how did you develop a love for theater and for art and for, you know, uh, animation and you yeah. know, all those different things? But when would you say would be the first time that it really connected with you and you, you thought, like, I really love this? When I was a little kid, I always wanted to tell stories and... I would play dress up with my friends and my brother and we had like all these crazy costumes. And, you know, one day my brother's like, I want to be a fireman. Then he wants to be a policeman. Then he wants to be whatever. And then I was like, I want to be a filmmaker or director or a movie maker. I don't know what my concept was, but I want to tell stories that can be all those things. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to choose. I knew if I made movies and that was my big thing that I could be a fireman one day or a detective or a spaceman. I could do all that and, you know, change it up. What so, age are we talking about right now? Five, uh, five six, seven? My eight? first film, my first short film was in grade two. Oh, my okay. dad was the cameraman. I was director star with our neighbors. And my brother was one of the villains. Uh, the Three Ninjas movie was big when we were yeah. kids. So it was our version of Three Ninjas. And that so, would have been in what country? That was in Bangkok. Okay. My dad was a PE teacher. He got us into the gym uh, and we were swinging on the climbing ropes and doing everything you're not supposed to do. But yeah. we were like just staging all these ridiculous action scenes and we still have tapes and there was all these ridiculous scenes where three ninjas one by one would poke their head up one, two, three in the window and then jump into the scene. One, two, three, all this repetition. And I'm still like, that's pretty good for a second grader. Yeah. But, uh, then I just started making movies and just would spend months and months and months recreating Star Wars. And then uh, when I got to high school, uh, 
it's been a few years, but there was a film class and you were supposed to be in grade 11 and 12, but I was trying to figure out what elective I wanted to take. And I asked special permission to take film studies a couple years early and started making movies again and then just kept going from then on. And all through high school, I was making movies and my friends were all like my actors and my acting troupe and just kept doing that and kept making movies. And then uh, from there, went to the Vancouver Film School and was going to you know take it to the next level. It was a fantastic experience. I always tell kids it was just really amazing because kids get really excited because I say, all we did was make movies. Like, yeah. Wow. Like, yeah. Instead of English class, we had script writing class. Wow. Yeah. Instead of math class, we had camera class. Oh. Yeah. Instead of science class, we had editing class. And he's like, I want to go to film school. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it was great. I made movies that I'm very proud of, but it takes a lot of time and money. And you need a lot of other people to help you. You need fancy, expensive equipment. I don't always have fancy, expensive equipment or time or money or other people to help, but I still want to tell stories visually. And also, it was just really hard to get into the film industry. And I was 19 when I graduated film school Mm -hmm. and living overseas or living back home. Which was overseas. Which was overseas for me (laughs) for the first time, you know, still somewhat scared of riding the bus, getting a bit more bold. But, uh, like, I was still terrified of talking to strangers, still terrified of putting myself out there. And you have to do that. And film is all about connections and networking and growing up in Malaysia. I have no connections in Vancouver or in Hollywood for the film industry. Yeah. So didn't really do anything. That was a really dark period of my life. Just nothing going on. I knew my parents were very worried about me in Malaysia, but there's not much they could do when they're so far away. Luckily I got back into ISKL. Uh, They were making a new promotional DVD. So that brought me back overseas eternally grateful for that uh and that kind of made me realize how much i loved living overseas i was okay what can i do that would get me back overseas i'm not going to get into oil i'm going to be a teacher so i went to university because i knew i needed a proper degree uh by the time i was about to graduate university that which was where that was at the university of victoria okay so Um, you went okay so you went to vancouver vancouver back to malaysia yeah and then back and then to victoria Uh, and by the time I was ready to graduate from Victoria, that promotional video at ISKL was getting a little long in the tooth and a little dated. So I got to go back to Malaysia to do another video. Um, again, fantastic. From there, I went and taught English in Hong Kong. Uh, from there I went to Japan. I got to teach with my parents at the American school in Japan the year right before they retired, which was a fantastic experience. They are definitely massive heroes of mine, uh, and they're fantastic educators and just being colleagues with them is always something that's really special for me. Like yeah, yeah. they are top class teachers and they are fantastic and getting to work alongside them was really fun and really cool. They must've uh, loved it too. They, yeah, they, yeah. they stayed on, they made sure they were there. Like it was amazing. Um, after Japan ended up in Kuwait and while I was in Kuwait, I met my wife who was fantastic. Uh, my wife, Emma was a, international school teacher as well. She had never left Scotland before um, and she decided to take a chance and move to Kuwait. Someone told her it was just like Dubai. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think so. <laughs> she, I think she had an offer to go to Dubai and the headmaster at Kuwait said, it's just like Dubai. Everything you get in Dubai, you can get in Kuwait. Yeah, right. <laughs> which she realized when she got there was not true. Yeah. Uh, Kuwait is a dry country, which means you have to really make your own fun. Um, yeah. And because of that, you have to kind of put yourself out there and you have to find opportunities to find community outside of your school. So I met my wife through community theater. Um, she had done theater when she was younger, hadn't done it for years and years and years. She was in Kuwait. She got back into theater in a big way. She was a choreographer for the show. I had done theater in high school. Again, it's more storytelling, performing. I did it my last year in Tokyo because my community had kind of retired or moved on or I was kind of left without the people that I hung out with my first year. Um, so I joined theater there. So I took that to Kuwait. And that's how I met my wife, uh, who was fantastic. And after we got married one year, and then we had another year in Kuwait, and I said to her, we saved money so well in Kuwait for leading up to our wedding. Why don't we save money again for a year and do something crazy? We don't have kids right now. We don't have a house. Why don't we do something crazy? Let's go back to school. I'll go to a comics program that I heard about. You can go to art school. And she said, no, that's ridiculous. Why would we do that? That's so silly. I said, okay, fine. That's right. It was a crazy idea. And we go to sleep. The next day she wakes up. She says, I thought about it. 
we're going to take a year off. I'm going to go to art school and you're going to go to comic school. <laughs> and like I always, say, I always say, okay, whatever you want. So uh, we saved up again and very proud of my wife. She had never done art before, but she was just getting so sick of watching me draw comics. I'd start oh. <laughs> rewind a little bit. When we got engaged, I started making comics again. I hadn't been making comics for a while. Yeah. I was making autobiographical comics in university. Uh, I made them all through Hong Kong. I kind of ran out of steam in Japan. When we got engaged, I sent out a two-page Save the Day comic of how we met. Uh, 20 panels on two pages or something like that. And then as we were getting ready for the next year, I was doing more and more little stories about planning the wedding, her buying the dress and hiding how much it cost and me freaking out about how much it cost and trying to figure out what I'm going to wear and arguing about, you know, can I wear a top hat and tails and her saying, no, that's ridiculous. And I was admitting defeat and saying, whatever Emma wants me to wear, I will wear. But I was collecting all these stories. And so by the time we got married, I had uh, a 60 page little mini comic and that was our keepsake for our wedding. So that's, oh, that's why amazing, right? I was like, I want to make comics. This is, I miss this. I miss telling stories. So we went to school. I went to this comics program. My wife went to uh, Vancouver Island School of Art, Visa. She was loving it. Like, and she had never done art before, but because she was getting so sick of watching me draw, she's like, I want I'm going to draw. I'm going to, and I got her the drawing on the right side of the brand book. And she just took off and went through it. And her stuff is fantastic for someone who's never done art before. It's, and it's so inspiring again, as a, like seeing someone rediscovering their passion for learning. She's been a teacher for years and years and years. And then she's, now she's a learner and she's getting excited. So that was really cool to see. What was the name of that book again? The drawing? Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Okay. It's a fantastic book. It has all these different exercises that just kind of teaches you, trains you how to look at the world and then see things like negative space and shadows and oh, wow. uh, drawing upside down to just look at the shapes instead of actually paying attention to what you think you're drawing. And it's fantastic. So she got into art school. My comics program was disappointing. Um... Coming from an IB school in Kuwait, coming from a background as an IB student, uh, I was 30, turning 31. I was in class with some younger kids that were just out of school, and they were all very excited just to be drawing comics. But I was looking for the next level. I was looking for really deep inquiry-based learning, I think, and that's not what the program was. So I really struggled and uh, dropped out halfway through Mm -hmm. and said, I'm going to do this on my own. I want to make comics. I know what I want to do. So I had a semester while my wife was still at art school. I took some classes with her at art. Um, then we needed to go back and make money. She said, okay, I'm going to go teach again. I've been cold for a year. I want to go back to the Middle East. Yeah. So she got a job in Alain in the United Arab Emirates. She wanted to be back in the Middle East, try something new. She wanted to be warm again. She wanted to yeah. go somewhere where you could order food yeah. and not have to worry. And we yeah. knew we could make some money. Uh, and she told me that I have one year to figure out how to make money in comics. And I said, okay. And neither one of us knew what that meant or what I could do or where the money was in comics. I was hoping maybe I could do some graphic novels, sell those, and just make money off of that. But publishing and getting published is very difficult, and building an audience is very difficult. But, uh, again, through so, connections... So what I, what I think, though, like, in hearing your story and hearing, like... And, yeah, it's, it's like there's so much there, but it's kind of like all of those pieces that fall into place to lead you on the path you're on. Yes. And I want to return back to that idea of taking initiative and taking risk. Yes. You know, which is a learner prof- profile attribute risk taker. Yes. But being willing to take the risk to do something new is is what so many people dream of but don't do. And they're held back by a life of... You know, like they they have to live the life that they do because mm-hmm. there's no other option. This yes. is just what they have to do. Yes. And that's such a mindset, you know. So you were able through your experiences to kind of break the mindset and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a risk here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go for something that I love and step into the unknown. Yes. And that's the key because there is no safety net when you do that. And when you are willing to take away the safety net and still step in, into the unknown, then that's where genuine growth takes place. Yeah. And that's where real opportunity comes from. Yeah. So you go to arts, uh, your comic school, and you drop out. Mm-hmm. And then I'm you a comic say, school dropout. Yeah, and, but you say, <laughs> I'm going to figure this shit out on my own. Yeah. Right? And then you move to the Middle East, and now you have one year. Yes. So what was your mindset in that year? Was your mindset one of like, I have to make this happen, 
or was it, um, you know, let's just see what happens? Did you feel a pressure? Were you anxious? Were you worried a bit? Or was it a combination of everything? I definitely felt the pressure. Um, I, I wanted to contribute to my family. I, I didn't want my wife to have to feel like she was carrying the load. And I know that she did feel that pressure of having the only stable job. And we didn't love it in LA. And it's a very quiet place. It was very difficult to be there as a young married couple. And she probably would have wanted to leave, but we kind of needed this steady income. So I knew there was pressure there and I felt that pressure too. So I wanted to make it work. There's always going to be teaching jobs. So I knew that I had that yeah. and I wouldn't call, even call it a fallback because I do genuinely love teaching. I was very fortunate. Someone who I taught with in Japan uh, is now principal in Munich International School, Michelle Yuhas, and she contacted me and said, would you ever consider school visits? And when I was in Kuwait, I was a kindergarten through grade 12 technology coach. So all I did was visit classrooms and do different cool, exciting things. So I had the material. I had the lessons. I prepared a, a proposal packet, sent it out, and I had this proposal packet. So I I said, I might as well send this out to other schools. So I started contacting anyone I knew. And because of my time as a tech coach, the, the role is really ill-defined when I was there uh, at the American International School uh, in Kuwait. They just uh, bought all these iPads and just decided to hire tech coaches, but they weren't really sure what that was going to be. And so it was a lot of me. I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to sit around in my office. Like I needed to be active. So it was me going to people and saying, hey, what are you doing in your class today? That's cool. What if we did that as an iMovie? And just because I was bored and I didn't want to sit in my office. So taking, getting into that rhythm of being bold enough to say, hey, what are you doing? What about a radio show instead? Hey, why don't we make a comic? Hey, let's make a digital comic. Hey, let's make a podcast out of this. So going in as a consultant collaborator. Yes, very much a collaborator. Like, hey, what are you doing? Cool. Let's give it a cool text man. Hey, let's make something. And I always said like, I'm not a techie guy. I'm a creative guy who uses tech to be creative. And I want to help kids be creative and help them be creative through tech. So taking that sort of, I was in that mindset as a tech coach, like, Hey, what are you doing? Let me help out. Let's make something cool together. And so I was able to kind of take that into approaching schools. Hey, I've got these cool lessons. Let me come in. I can work with kindergarten through grade 12 because of my time in Kuwait. Hey, I'm a third culture kid. Hey, I'm a former international school teacher. I really sell myself. I've self-published a couple books. Uh, I've had my comics, uh, my short stories published by some smaller publishers, but I'm not a known cartoonist. Uh, you know, you Google Matt Smith comics, and unfortunately, you have to wade through tons of Doctor Who comics before you can find me. <laughs> but that's not what I sell myself as. I sell myself as I'm coming. I've got a workshop. I can make. I can get every kid in your class drawing a comic, which can, you did today. I watched you with the six panels. Yes, right? <laughs> and and I watched you with the grade three class, and and. You know, you're clearly comfortable in front of kids, you know, and I think what are the, the skill as a cartoonist? What, what skills did you have to develop? Because I, so you, you're bringing an, an amalgamation of all these skills into your, your current role, right? Mm-hmm. That you do. So oh, definitely, what, yes. what are the specific skills as a cartoonist that you've really developed deeply over the last couple of years? You mean developing myself as a cartoonist and yes. growing as a cartoonist? Yes. Um, so cartoonist specifics. Yeah. That's a, how have you gotten? Yeah. How have you gotten better? Because I've seen you drop in live time. Yes. Which was awesome, right? And for those listening, Matt uh, was introduced at assembly this weekend in front of six hundred kids. He did some live time drawings, and then you said, "I've done this so many times, I can do it with my eyes closed." Yes. And you looked away to prove that your eyes were closed. And, and the kids loved what you were doing. You were close to, to finishing it. I was so disappointed. That was the worst I've ever done. And I think it was the it was, largest audience and the pressure. It was, it was great, though. Yes. And, and what it teaches the kids is just the, the element of fun and joy in taking risks. Yes. And that's what I got from seeing you up there. So today in seeing you with the grade threes, and I sent out a tweet um, of just showing some of the stuff you were doing, um, so when you look at the specific skills that you were more or less forced to develop because you took this path as a cartoonist, yeah, yeah, what what would that be? Well, I, I'm sure any educator listening knows, you know, once you teach a subject, that's when you really get to know it. And yeah. just seeing not only today, I saw hundreds of kids already, and this whole week, you know, it's how many students from one to six, yeah, eight, like, nine hundred students. Yeah, lots. So seeing eight, 900 cartoonists telling their stories in their own unique ways, that already is, 
you know, just information upload to my brain of different yeah. ways of telling stories. But there's things that I some there's main building blocks of comics that I really really focus on with students. And my main goal is always how can I get kids to make comics that teachers can actually understand and read? Yeah. So how, you, you can ask a kid to draw a comic and they'll give you something with words and pictures, but you know, making sure, okay, what are you communicating here and how are you actually giving me something that has thought behind it and intention behind it? And so really, really focusing on you know, motion lines that make it look like the characters are moving and emanata is the name for all those shapes that come out of the character's head, the comic book language, and how can you really express how a character feels and sound effects that maybe I wouldn't have stressed so much in my own work until I really do kind of sell it. Like this is important to get across and this is important to bring your characters to life. So I see that being incorporated more in my, in my own work, just to make more dynamic, more cartoony, more animated comics. Um, but just being the intention and just making sure I'm as clear as I possibly can be and knowing that you're going to have a wide range of readers and you can't control the readers. You're not there sitting with differentiate. them. Yeah. So just making sure that there is a, such a clarity to all my work. Even when I uh, collaborate with different artists, I think sometimes I might drive them a little bit crazy when I just ask them to make things, what they might think is a bit too obvious, a bit too clear, but I don't want to lose anyone at any point. I, as soon as you lose someone, their eyes drift off from that page. So one of the on. values is definitely uh, clarity. As yes. you said, and, and how, like, when you say clarity, is it, like, do you have, like, a, you want three points per page? Do you want one point? I don't mean to be formulaic here or yeah. anything or, or that linear, but how do you define clarity, like, clarity of message? Just, it, it's, not, it's not so scientific as, you know, this many things happen or yeah. this many points, but, you know, if, if the art is not making it, super clear then change the dialogue to make it more clear and just make it easy for everyone to get it you don't want to lose anyone at any point if it's not being clear then add a caption add some narration what can you do just to make sure you don't lose your reader at any point um i i jokingly say to to students there's no room for ambiguity in comics because i don't want the teacher to get their comic back and be confused and say okay well I don't understand what we're doing. We're only writing essays from here on out. Yeah. I, I really do think that with the right understanding, appreciation, and training on the side of parents, educators, and students, that I really do believe that comics can replace any kind of written assignment. But you just have to train everyone up. It's a new language. You have to make sure that everyone is speaking that language clearly. So that's why I really hammer home the point with the kids. I want to know exactly what's going on. Make it easy for your reader. Make it easy for your teacher Really, that's your main reader. If your teacher can understand your comics, there's no argument so against... You can have different genres of writing within that. So you could have narrative, you can have descriptive, you can have... any. You know. It's a it's a medium. I always hammer home that point too. Comics are a medium. It's not a genre. So if you're handing in a comic that clearly shows you know, a journal entry of this is the assignment I did or this is my personal journey for my... Uh, MYP personal project as a comic and the teacher can get everything they need from that and they understand the emotions involved, they understand, you know, the intention and it's communicating exactly what's going on, then there's no excuse not to allow comics in the classroom more. Yeah. And one, one of the questions I've, so I've, I've had some um, authors on the show and yeah. I've had some really super creative people on the show. And one of the, you see that painting over there on the wall, you yeah. can see writing on it, you know, like um, you can get a closer look later, but that's a friend of ours. She's, um, she's a artist in Canada. Her name is Jane Roos. And she has single-handedly raised over $40 million for Canadian Olympic athletes through her artwork. Oh, wow. And it's incredible. So she literally will tell a story about a person. So what she does is she has these campaigns where um, describe somebody who means something to you in three words. So you will go to Jane and you will give um, Jane three words to describe that person then she will create a, a painting small painting see the wall right behind you see it like that yeah so she will create some some simple artwork with that those yeah. words on there and then she gives it to the person to present to their mentor or their favorite yeah. teacher and it's like you know it's art can be expressed in lots of different ways right and I think I go back to like each artist is very unique 
in, in what they do and how they share messages. And I think that's what ultimately you're here to do this week is to teach kids how they can express themselves. Yes. Right. And what do you feel are like your, your, the key points you're really drilling home to kids this week? Like I said, I, so as I mentioned, I've got like the basic building blocks of comics and I want kids to kind of have these tools in their comic making toolkit. So motion lines are show me your characters are moving, walking, running, jumping, whatever. The emanata, those crazy comic book shapes that come out of the kids' heads, question marks, uh, angry storms, you know, light bulbs. I want to know how your character feels at all time. I kept telling kids today, I want to go on an emotional roller coaster with your characters. I want to be connected. Uh, sound effects to bring the story to life and then really uh, clearly written and uh, easy to read speech balloons, thought bubbles and caption boxes. So those are like the main building blocks. And if you can use those and you have those in your toolkit, then you're off and running and that's what you need to be able to tell any type of story. Yeah. And how are you at your creative best? And that's what I wanted to ask before. And I, but like when you're doing your work, what conditions have to be present? (laughs) And this is going back to like, I asked this question to authors and lots of different creative people, but how are you personally, like Matt Smith, how are you at your creative best? What conditions have to be present? Uh, I need a deadline. Oh, so you, you work under pressure. I need a deadline. Um, are you I, a procrastinator? Uh, well... It, like where things are incubating? Like, like many creative people, I'm sure, like I've got a million ideas that I want to do, but, you know, there's only so much time in the day. And my energy and my focus really has to be on finding these school visits because that's where my income comes from. So when I wake up, I've got to answer emails. I've got to plan the next trip. I've got to make sure lesson plans are ready. I've got to send thank you notes for the last trip. I've got to get emails sent out for a couple months from now or next semester. So that's where my time has to be focused on. If, you know, I've got time at the end of the day, I'm tired. Just like any teacher at the end of the day, it's hard to find that mental energy to be creative when you've done all of the work you're supposed to be doing. So I need a deadline. I need to know this has to be done by a certain point. Otherwise, it's not going to get done. The book that I've been selling all week at Kaust, my interactive instructional book, Let's Draw Some Comics, I had my first school visit booked. I was at the American School of Kuwait. I've been now three times. Fantastic school. I love everyone there. It's such a wonderful community. But my wife, as a primary teacher, said, you need a book. Kids are going to want to buy something. Yeah. And she was going home to Scotland for a week for her October break. And so I just locked myself in my office for a week and I wrote and drew this 24 page comic because I knew I had to get it done in time to get it to the printers in time to get it shipped and, and to bring it with me to Kuwait. So I need that deadline. Uh, when I'm making comics, when I had my web comic going, I gave myself deadlines of two or three times a week. I knew I had to get a comic finished in time to update on Instagram, on my website. When I'm writing uh, my horror story collaborations with different artists, I'm writing for submission. So a publisher is looking for, you know, this stories with this theme. This is the deadline. I've got to get it done by that time. I need that deadline. To So even though you have the deadline in place, and I just want to tell a quick story because my question is specifically related to, to how you create under deadlines, right? So, you know, Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Right. And you know, Bob Dylan. Yes. So Leonard Cohen writes the song Hallelujah. Yeah. Have you heard this story? No, okay, I know so, the song, but I don't know the okay, story. Okay, so Hallelujah, it takes Leonard Cohen years yeah. to write that song. And it goes through several iterations. And I was listening to a podcast a, a few years ago, and it specifically talked about how Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen were extremely different creators. Yeah. Right? And how Leonard Cohen painstakingly went over every word in the song to the point that it made him sick, literally. Yeah. And Leonard Cohen even described at one point being in a hotel room where he was almost finished the song and he was in his underwear on his hands and knees with his forehead against the, the, the cool ceramic yeah. floor, banging his head against the floor almost in tears because he couldn't figure out how to finish the, the hallelujah in a way yeah. that he wanted to release it to the world. So he was holding it back from the world. Yeah. Right. So then finally he, he puts it out there and he's unhappy with it. But this is after five years. Yeah. Right. So he happens to be performing in Paris. Bob Dylan is performing in Paris and, and they've never met. 
but they because they're both in Paris, they decide to, to hook up at a cafe. And then um, Dylan says, oh, man, that, you're, hallelujah, what a great song. And how long did it take you to make that? And Cohen says, oh, you know, like maybe like a week or something. Because yeah. <laughs> he's ashamed to admit that the song almost killed him, literally, yeah. right? That, and he was ashamed to admit ultimately that he, he believed he was not an artist. Yeah. He genuinely believed that if he was such a great artist, it wouldn't take him so long yeah. to create art. And then Leonard Cohen throws it to Dylan, how long did it take you to make your last uh, song? And Dylan's like <laughs> sipping his coffee and he says, oh yeah, about 10 minutes over a, you know, a <laughs> cigarette and a coffee. And Cohen was like, oh, and kind of laughs, but inside it was like a knife going in. Yeah. <laughs> because he's like, how can you do what you do and create it in such little time? Yeah. So it's that idea of, you know, there are two different kinds of creators. And Cohen was obviously somebody that let ideas like, you know, stay inside of him. But he, it was about perfection, yeah. putting out his perfect self to the world, where Dylan was like, screw it. I'm going to put out shit right away as it is and that's my art to the world yeah and that's why i ask you about so even though you work under deadlines do you still let things kind of incubate and kind of sit and sit and sit and then you get to the point where you're like okay now i need to start moving or do you how does it work with you because you say you work under deadlines yeah but what does that process look within the deadline itself within the deadline yeah, I mean, as I'm doing emails, as I'm taking care of groceries or doing things around the house, it is kind of working in the back. And then as I go to sleep, I kind of think, okay, let's kind of tell myself a story and let it kind of work. But it really gets to a point where I know I need to send the script to this artist because he needs time to then draw it and finish it. And then I need time to get it back to do the lettering and send it off. So it really is like, it's got to be done now. Like, no more time to think about it. And then boom, you start it. Figure it out. Yeah. I do I do redraft even when I get the art back I will redraft the the dialogue and the narration based again on what I get back and also I've had a bit more time to think about it and I'm mostly concerned about okay what's the story what are we seeing I'll figure out the 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 details of the of the dialogue and the narration later but it is because I am so busy I'm very fortunate these last couple of years I am traveling so much that I don't have time really to, to bask in, you know, my imaginatorium at home and yeah. ideas come to me. It's like, oh, my gosh, I'm back for a week, couple weeks. I know that I've got these deadlines coming up for a story. I need to get it out so that I can I know that the art is being worked on while I'm traveling. Or And then by the time I get back, I'll have the art and then I can do the lettering and send it off. So I wish I had the luxury and I, I love what I'm doing. I'm very fortunate to be visiting schools and helping so many students at once make comics and like I said eight to nine hundred kids that I'm working with and seeing them make their own comics it's fantastic I do wish I had more time to make my own comics but I gotta I need to you know I, I need to make this work I need to keep this going yeah, I gotta keep the hustle going yeah um, I always think like oh man you know like I've got a couple weeks like that'll be my slow time I'll, I'll, I'll make that you know mini comic that I've always wanted to do I'll, I'll, I'll finally write that script for that graphic novel that I want to do but you know you know, there's only so many hours in the day and there's exactly, always, there's right? always more you, to do. It's how you use them too. And yeah. the question that I like to ask as, as we approach the end of the podcast, and I want to, I want to have you share where people can find you for sure. Yeah. Right? But, um, what I like to ask is if you could go back to, you know, if you're in a time machine, you could go back to your 20 year old self or 15 year old self and you could get out of the time machine and you only had one minute with yourself. What would you say? But I'm going to flip it. I'm going to say if you could go to your future self, you know, so the 55-year-old uh, Matt Smith, yeah. uh, 20 years down the road or 25 years down the road, and you could you could travel to that time and get out and, and share a message or, you know, 30 seconds, what would you hope to tell your future self about the work or w- whatever it is that, that you want to say to that future person with the hopes you have and all of that? I... I... It is difficult for me to be present in the moment because I'm in Saudi, but only for five or six nights. And I know that I got to go back and I'm only in Scotland for six nights before I go away again. And then I know that I've got in the back of my mind, I'm planning my trip to Shanghai. I know in the back of my mind, I'm planning my trip to Denmark. And I just want to know 
you know, years from now that I am taking the time to appreciate where I am. I went to the beach yesterday and Mm -hmm. just was, it was fantastic. I had the beach to myself. It was amazing. And I just hope that I remember these quiet moments in between all the madness. And I do hope that, you know, I, I keep these very unique, very strange experiences, very personal experiences. And I do get to enjoy them and I'm not just thinking about the next trip and what I got to do or get to the airport, check into the next flight. And that's what I would hope that me and my 50 year old self can talk about. Hey, like, don't worry. Like you did look around and stop and see the cool things that you got to experience along the way. And, yeah. and that's, you know, you met my wife, Neela, and she does a lot of mindfulness and she brought a lot of mindfulness into our relationship and into our life as a family. Yeah. And at first I didn't really, you know, she was doing her thing with mindfulness and and then I really started to learn about it. And it really, at the end of the day, what mindfulness is all about is not not ruminating in the past, yeah, not projecting into the future, but truly being present in the moment. And with being present in the moment comes the opportunities to really reflect on what you're grateful for. Yeah. And now it's not just fluff. Brain science, literally over the last five years, has shown the power of gratitude. Yeah. But gratitude is not possible unless you're in the present moment, right? Yeah. Because you're always worried about the past or the future. You know, and as humans, that's what we're programmed to do. Yeah. We're worried about going on the corner, even though a saber-toothed tiger won't jump out of the bush. Yeah. We're we're still in that mindset of, of having to move forward and do things. And so that's great advice to your future self is uh, to look back and say, I appreciated the moments that I had. And when I did my year of consulting, I think I was in 12 different countries over 15 months. And, And in the moment I was very much caught up in trying to absorb the moment. Yeah. But getting on the plane. Yeah. And and going back and I had spent a stretch of time when I accepted the job here, it, which was November 2016, I think. I was actually in Melbourne, Australia yeah. doing work down there. <laughs> but I had gone from Korea back to China to see the family. Then I went to Hong Kong. Then I went to Frankfurt, from Frankfurt to Melbourne, from Melbourne back to China to do one more a bit of work and then back home. Yeah. And it was 24 days. I hadn't been home. Yeah. And it was like, it was such an amazing experience, but at the same time, then you're on the plane, you're reflecting about what a great experience it is. But in the moment it can be chaotic and crazy, but I wasn't as into mindfulness then as I am now. And I wish I would have been because I would have been able to take in those experiences more. So, um, so just on your, mention of gratitude, I would be very remiss to say that I could not be doing what I'm doing without the support of my fantastic wife, Emma. She has supported me and she's definitely encouraged me. And the only downside of my job, I love my job. The only downside is being away from her and my cats uh, for so long. This is the end of a four week trip away. And that's been really tough and it's been challenging, but she's so supportive and she's the one who really pushed me. And she's always, always had my back and has really supported this whole change in career. So, I mean, you've talked about, you know, taking that risk. I would not have taken this risk without her. So just as you mentioned gratitude, I must, must, must be grateful to my amazing wife. And And I want to say that. I'm sure she will appreciate that. And that's what it takes when you're in a relationship where you're supporting each other and to do the things that you're doing. And because that's what ultimately plants the seeds for future, you know, um, flowers to flourish and to bloom. But, um, so where can people find you, Matt? Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter as Smith versus Smith. I'm on Instagram as at Smith versus Smith comics, Facebook as well at Smith versus Smith comics. Um, my website is Smith versus Smith.com. But if you want specifically to find out about, uh, my workshops and the lessons that I offer to schools, it's Smith versus Smith.com slash resources dash lessons. So it's a bit long. But that'll take you directly to the workshops. If you go to smithversusmith.com, you can click on workshops and it'll take you there as well. Yeah. Gives you a rundown of the workshops that I offer schools. Um, it's kind of like a menu of what I have offered. I'm always happy to discuss new ideas if there's something a school wants me to focus on in particular. Uh, it's got a list of schools I've visited in the past. It's got testimonials from both teachers and uh, students. Uh, 
but uh, my email is matt at smith smith.com. Always looking for new schools to visit and uh, always happy to travel. Yeah. Excellent. Um, just to be clear here, you know, as a cartoonist, obviously visual arts is your focus, how to draw cartoons and the elements of art that go into it. But a lot of work that you do is encompasses and connects deeply with literacy. Mm -hmm. So the work that you do at schools is not just about drawing cartoons. It deeply connects to literacy. Uh, it deeply connects to finding your passion, mm -hmm. uh, lots of different things. So the schools that bring you in don't bring you in for just one thing. So any school listening to this can literally bring you in for their literacy program. Yeah, I, I do sell myself as, you know, it's, it's a literacy-focused lesson. So I always say, you know, Anyone can draw comics. It does not matter what your artistic background is. It's really about communicating and telling stories with words and pictures. So I mostly do work with English and language classrooms. Um, I do work with art classrooms, and that's a lot of fun, but I do very much focus on the literacy and the inclusiveness of I, I don't care if you are an art student or if you consider yourself an artist. Can you draw a stick figure? Great. Can you make that stick figure look like it's moving by adding some lines behind it? Awesome. Can you make that stick figure super happy by having stars shooting out of their head? You're telling me a story with character and motion. You're telling me a story. Excellent. And that is, yeah, I, I, I hit the literacy. That is the main focus. Yeah, and that's, sure. that's definitely what schools need. So, yeah. Matt, thank you very much. It's thank been you. great, man. That was fun. Yeah. Um, everybody, uh, thanks for listening to the episode with Matt Smith. You can find all of his information in the show notes, and I hope that you do connect with him. Uh, either on Twitter or are you on Instagram? Instagram, Facebook, yeah. email. Okay, excellent. So, yeah, thanks again, Matt, and uh, yeah. I look forward to getting this episode Thank up. You. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.